Father, we do want your perfect will in your perfect way. And Lord, we want your word to teach our hearts. And so we come humbly, confessing our inadequacy, confessing how so often we feel like we are lost in the darkness, not sure what to do, and knowing somehow that our conclusions that we've drawn can't be right. Lord, we ask that the light of your word would shine into our hearts, and we pray that you would teach us a wisdom that is perfect, that comes down from above, that is holy and pure. And Lord, we pray that you would cause our lives and the ministry of this church to bear glorious fruit. We pray that it would give praise to your name. We pray that people's lives would be revolutionized, that people would be saved, that people would be liberated and transformed. And Lord, we pray that you would convince us that you are holy, wise, and good, and that there's no end to the goodness, that there's no limit to the holiness, that the wisdom is complete. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. This past Friday, Jill and I had the privilege of going to uh, a ministry called Scarlet Hope here in Louisville, and we sat down and we led a, a Bible study with people who, are, who have been delivered, really, from, from really um, wretched things. And um, in order to be in this program, uh, the people in this program, they have to make a commitment. They have to make an 18-month commitment. They have to be sober. I think they have to have been sober for like 30 or 90 days before they enter into the program. Part of the program is that they participate in this Bible, st Bible studies like the one that Jill and I were privileged to lead. And while we were there, um, we, just talking with people, we, we heard stories of, of um, what people have come out of. There, there was a, a woman there who had been in a form of slavery, a kind of slavery for something like 35 years of her life from about the time she was 15 till about the time she was 50. And, um, and she has written a book that Jill picked up a copy of. And as Jill was reading the book and she was hearing, as, I, as I've been processing this, my mind goes to Rahab in the Bible. And, and as I think about uh, this harlot who lived in the wall of Jericho, and I think about other things that I've read about people who find themselves in these circumstances. Um, there are all, uh, circumstances, it, it seems to develop like this. There's not enough food to eat. There are people who are dependent. And then the conclusion is drawn that the only way to provide what is needed is through this form of, of work, if you can call it that. Some people refer to it as the the world's oldest form of work. Um, so I would imagine that Rahab was forced into something like this by awful circumstances. And as Jill was uh, reading this book, she, she was describing some of the circumstances 
near starvation, hunger that result in, in um, wretched and horrific things being done and, and a person being forced into this, this kind of slavery. And um, Jill began to say to me, why would God even create someone who, who would have to live in such a situation like that? Why would, why would the Lord set the world up so that there are these kinds of things that take place in the world? And I think that's exactly what Paul is addressing in Romans 3, 1 to 8. So I would invite you to open the Bible this morning. And um, we're going to get to Paul answering those questions directly. But as we, as we approach this text, I want to invite you to keep Rahab in mind. And, and as we go through this passage, we'll make reference to, to um, this woman who was enslaved at Jericho. Um, as we approach this passage, let me remind you of where we are in the book of Romans. Paul has talked in chapter 1 in verses 14 through 16 about how he feels an eagerness and an obligation and no shame about proclaiming the gospel. And the reason he feels eager to proclaim the gospel, he gives us three reasons. Number one, it's the power of God for salvation. So he's eager to preach it. Number two, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. So he's eager to preach it. And then number three, the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. And just this, this poor lady that Jill was reading about, her parents were... were um, I mean, you, you just put them completely in the minus column. Drunk and high all the time, no parenting, no protection, no provision. And, and it's really as though the, the child was punished for the sins of the, of the father. It's a horrific situation. The wrath of God is revealed. And in, in chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, through verse 32, Paul is largely describing... Uh, what we might say as the sins of the Gentile world. And then in 2, 1 through 5, he turns to the Jews and he essentially says, the Jews are condemned because they do the same kinds of things. And then uh, in 2, 6 through 11, uh, Paul talks about how God is impartial. If you look at verse 11, God shows no partiality. And in verse 6, he renders to each one according to his works. So God's not going to be bribed into showing partiality to anyone, and people are going to be judged according to a standard of justice. And then in, in verses 12 through uh, 16, Paul talks about how um, there's an external uh, perception of the law, and then there are people who actually have the law written on their hearts, and they do what the law requires from the heart. And, and Paul is really uh, communicating that this is, what, this is what God wants, and in an attempt to show his Jewish kinsmen that this is what they need, in 2, 17 through 24, he explains that God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their sin. And then in verses 25 through 29, and this is really setting us up for what we are about to see, uh, Paul turns again to that external-internal contrast where he speaks of how some people are just circumcised externally, and that really doesn't do them any good. What they need is to have their hearts circumcised. And if you've had your heart circumcised, the law of God has been written on your heart. And then in 3, 1 to 8, he's going to take up some questions, and I'm going to suggest that there are five questions here. These questions that, that are really 
flowing out of 2, 28, and 29. So I want to first read 2, 28, and 29. And then what I want to do is walk through and kind of paraphrase um, what Paul is going to say in this passage. Okay, so 2, 28, and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, what I want to do at this point is just paraphrase 3, 1 to 8 with with a kind of back and forth between Paul and his imaginary dialogue partner. So the dialogue, imagine the dialogue partner hearing this, no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, but being Jewish is inward, and circumcision is not, circumcision that's outward has no value, what you need is to have a circumcised heart. And the dialogue partner responds, well then what good is it to be Jewish? To which Paul says, the Jews received God's promises and his instructions about life. To which the dialogue partner says, well, yeah, but they didn't believe the promises and they didn't follow the instructions. To which Paul says, well, their unbelief and disobedience doesn't indict God, does it? That's not God's fault that they didn't believe or obey. In fact, Paul says, God's truth shines brighter when contrasted with their falsehood. To which the dialogue partner says, oh, okay. Now you can imagine this guy being very cynical, very skeptical. You might even uh, imagine a modern-day deconstructionist. And he says, okay, if our lies make God's truth shine brighter, isn't he wrong to punish us? And the logic of the question is, this is all a big setup. This is all a big setup for God to make himself look good. To which Paul says, no, God is going to judge the world in righteousness, which has to maintain that God is righteous in everything that he's done. To which the dialogue partner says, okay, God wants his truth to shine. Well, why am I held responsible for what I've done? Why am I condemned as a sinner? And then he goes on and say, if this is the way the setup works, why don't I just live out more falsehood so that his truth will shine all the brighter. And Paul's response is, those who draw these false conclusions are justly condemned. Okay, there's a summary of Romans 3, 1 to 8. Now let's go back and work through it carefully. Okay, so remember, 2, 28 and 29, Paul has just said, what you really need is circumcision of the heart, not merely this outward thing that's been done to you physically. You need a heart change. You need to be born again, we could say. Romans 3.1. This is Paul's dialogue partner. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Notice that the questions are paired. And, and the second one slightly alters the first one. What advantage has the Jew? What good is it being Jewish? And if circumcision doesn't put me right with God, what is its value? To which Paul says in verse 2, much in every way. It's good to be Jewish, but he doesn't elaborate on this at this point. He just gives the first reason it's good to be Jewish. Look at what he says here at the end of verse 2. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What he's saying is, the Jews got the Bible. The Jews got the Bible. God revealed himself to them. Now let's think about Rahab for a second. Rahab was in utter and complete darkness. Rahab's culture and society was dominated by pagan mythology that was, that was awful in its expression. These false gods that were maybe informed by demonic practices had resulted in her being enslaved and nobody in the culture caring about the fact that she was enslaved. And nobody in the culture having any answer or any remedy for her, her, her situation. She was in darkness. And then here come these people with the revelation of the living God. And her response to it is, I want to be with them. In fact, I'm ready to betray my kinsmen and do what they would say is unrighteous in order to be true and loyal to those people. So that, I don't want do what, so that I don't do what they would say is unrighteous. And, and I would submit to you that in her situation, doing what is righteous means protecting the people of God and not revealing which way they've gone or where they're hiding, but in fact saying maybe they've gone a different way when they're hiding up on the roof. So, so Rahab thought that the Jews had something really valuable in the word of God. How does having the Word of God speak to the questions raised by 2.28 and 29? So 2.28 and 29, a Jew is one inwardly, verse 29, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. How does, first of all, they had the Bible, they had the oracles of God. How does that answer, what good is it being a Jew? Well, the Word of God is the life-giving Word, isn't it? It's through the Word of God that hearts get circumcised. So you, what good is it having, being a Jew? What good is it to be certain? Well, you got the Bible, and if you'll study the Bible and pray to God, God can use the Word to change your heart. We have the Word of God today. We have this life-giving Word. We have the Word that circumcises hearts. And you might say to me, what good is that? Well, is your marriage in a bad place? If you will meditate on the word, this is a marriage-renewing word. Are your kids dissatisfactory to you? This is a child-training word. If you will meditate on the word, you will learn wisdom from the word that will give you new strategies for parenting your children. And if you're not finding them in the, in, them in the word directly, come talk to one of us elders, and we'll help you go to the right places. And, and we'll help you get wisdom from the word. Or we'll point you to good books that will show you how to do this. This is a world-reforming word. This is a word that will redirect people's thoughts toward true justice. One of the reasons I was so encouraged by that ministry that we saw on Friday is because of what it required of the people who are being helped by this ministry, the commitment. In, in other words, that ministry is not just a truck stop giving free gasoline to people speeding toward hell. That is not helpful. It is not helpful to be a truck stop giving free gasoline to people who are then flooring it on their headlong rush into hell. We don't want to be that kind of church that does that. That's why we don't just give things away. Okay? That's why we shouldn't 
just give things away. That's why Paul says, if a man will not work, let him not eat. The Bible teaches us a better way. And, and we, need, we need to think well about how to be biblical in the ways we're trying to help people. Lest we aid them in their headlong rush to destruction. We don't want to do that. The Bible is a world-reforming word. The Bible is a culture-making word. The Bible will produce among us a, a transformed and glorious culture. The Bible is a hope-giving word. You know, if you're here this morning and you're discouraged, look, look at verse 2 to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the revelation of the living God. If you're sitting here and you've got a Bible open in front of you, or if there's one in the pew in front of you, grab it, open it if you don't already have it open, and realize that this is the self-revelation of the living God, the God who made you, the God whose, whose word spoke creation into existence, and that God who made the world has the power to change your life. And that God who made the world has the power to speak into the lives of the people who you love, that you're discouraged by because they're so rebellious and recalcitrant and resistant to the gospel, and he can alter their course. This is a hope-giving word. It's our job to speak it. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, here's what I would say to you. You could... Give ear to God's word. You could hear what is being said, and you could believe it. You could decide, I'm going to take this God at his word. So there's the first question. What advantage has the Jew? What's the value of circumcision? Paul says, look, you had the Bible, which is the heart-circumcising word. Verse 3. Now, here's Paul's Here's Paul's uh, dialogue partner again. He, he's, he, he's, I think what Paul is doing is anticipating their questions. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, does their faithlessness, sorry, nullify the faithfulness of God? Now let's understand the question. Basically, what, what is being asked in the first question, what if some were unfaithful, is what if they didn't believe the promises? And what if they didn't follow the instructions in the oracles of, of the living God? What if they didn't believe the promises? What if they didn't follow the instructions? And then that will inform the second question. Does their faithlessness nullify the faith, faithfulness of God? Now let's just apply those terms here. The fact that they didn't believe the promises, does that mean that the promises fell flat? The fact that they didn't believe that God would do what he promised to do, does that mean that God hasn't done what he promised to do? Of course not, right? God has kept his promises, hasn't he? The fact that they didn't obey the instructions, does that mean that the instructions were no good? Of course not. You can't indict God for that. God gave good promises, and then he kept those promises. God gave good and true instructions, and they proved to be good and true instructions. It would be like, imagine me in a swimming pool at my neighbor's house down the street from where we live. There's this nice swimming pool. It's not a deep pool. The water is not cold. The lady has a, she has a heater, so if, it, if the water is cool, she can warm it up for us. 
And, and ima- so imagine me in the swimming pool, and imagine my four-year-old son, Isaiah, standing on the side of the pool, and me saying, the water's great, Isaiah, jump on in. The fact that he doesn't believe me doesn't mean that the water's not great. You see what I'm saying? The fact that he won't jump in doesn't mean that I, I'm going to l- get out of the way and, you know, let him go to the bottom. No. The fact that he won't dra- jump in doesn't say anything about me. It's his problem that he won't jump in. That's what Paul's getting at here. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Paul uses an expression here that could be rendered, may it never be. And it, may that thought not even occur in your head. By no means. And then he says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What, he, what he's saying is, God is true. God is true, even if every human being proves to be false. Even if every human being is a liar, God's true. As it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 51 verse 4, a a statement uttered by David, and, and he says here that you may be justified in your words, addressing the Lord, and prevail when you are judged. What this verse means is that when all the evidence is laid out, when, when, when all the considerations are brought forth, everybody's going to say, God was in the right. Nobody is going to be able to see all the evidence laid out and say, no, God is still in the wrong. It was wrong for God to do this. God will... Listen to me here. God will never be justly charged with wrong. The living God will never be condemned by the evidence. That can't happen. That's what Paul means here, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He will prevail. When the evidence is brought forth, when the court sits, when when the arguments are heard, he will be justified. God tells the truth, even if all humans lie. God's faithfulness will be demonstrated on Judgment Day. Now, uh, think about this with me. We humans, we were made in God's image and likeness, but we sinned. God is not a sinner. And, And our sin really does create this popping contrast between God's holiness and our squalor that people are forced to live in. God created the world. God is sovereign over the world. People in the world have lives like Rahab's life. That doesn't mean God is unrighteous. Application. Rather than doing the deconstructionist thing with these these truths... God is sovereign over the world. God made this world. People live like Rahab. He's in the wrong. Right? That, that would be, a, that'd be a, a bad conclusion to draw. Instead of responding that way, I submit to you that we should rejoice in God's faithfulness and we should find him to be our rock and our hope, 
even for people in situations like the situation that Rahab found herself in. Because we do know how her story turned out. Verse 5. Now, what the uh, imaginary dialogue partner does is he picks up on a, a grain of truth. God made the world. God is sovereign over the world. People have wretched lives. And he's going to continue to draw out bad conclusions from those, those grains of truth. Okay, so 3.5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, this popping contrast between God's holiness and our squalor, if that's the way it is, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Do you see the logic of the question? God set this whole thing up. God set this whole thing up where we would be sinners. God set this whole thing up where he would be justified and we would be condemned. And then the, and then the de deconstructionist says, oh, this is just a power play. This is just a political power grab. This is just, so what he's trying to do is he's trying to tear away, you know, the, all, all the, the smoke screen and the, and the, the stuff that's set up to hide uh, what's really behind the curtain from us. And he's trying to get at what he says is really the truth, it, which is that God up there who made the world and set the world up this way, he's unrighteous and it's wrong of him to inflict wrath on us. That's what he's getting at. So Paul's position is the fact that God is justified when he judges our sin does not make God unrighteous when he inflicts wrath on us. God did create the world. Our unrighteousness does highlight his utter and absolute purity. But those facts do not lead to the conclusion that the system shows God to be unrighteous. So in part, what I'm in, 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 in following through Paul's train of thought here, and in trying to bring out what Paul is getting at here, I'm trying to invite you away from a cynical, skeptical hermeneutic of suspicion. I don't want you to assert, God set this whole thing up to make himself look good. He created a world of sinners just to show off his holiness and then conclude that makes him unrighteous. There are grains of truth here, okay? God did create the world. God did know exactly how the world would turn up. But there are other considerations, other grains of truth. So there's a piece of truth here, but there are other pieces of truth like God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You could argue that the whole thing was a setup to display the enormity of God's love put forward in Christ, which is a big piece of the puzzle that Paul's dialogue partner is leaving out right here. So rather than reading this with the hermeneutic of suspicion from a cynical position and, and as a skeptic, you could say, look at what God did to show his love. It does not follow that God is unrighteous and that God is nothing but a self-centered, power-hungry, political manipulator, just like every sinful human being you've ever known, that those conclusions don't follow. And Paul explodes that worldview by asserting that that conclusion does not follow. 
Look, look, at, look at what he says here in, at the end of verse 5. After he asks the question that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, he's quick to add, I speak in a human way. It's like you, you don't need a degree in, in postmodern political theory to arrive at these kinds of ways of thinking. This is the way people think. We, in our sinfulness, in our fallenness, we are skeptical of people. We are suspicious, and we often draw the worst possible conclusion about other people and about God. And then here's Paul's response in verse 6, by no means. Again, may it never be. Don't, don't even think that. For then how could God judge the world? Now what, what Paul is saying here when he says, how could God judge the world, is he's asserting God is going to judge the world, and God is going to judge the world in absolute righteousness. One commentator says of this passage, all of this, of this, this question, how could God judge the world, he says, all the moral force of the Judeo-Christian tradition of a righteous God who maintains the right lies behind that question. It's all there. God will judge the world in righteousness. Augustine, Augustine puts forward this thought. He says, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist. So, so there, are, there are considerations that we don't have. There are things that God is at work on that we are unaware of. God has purposes of which we know nothing. He will judge in righteousness. And when he judges, he'll be shown to be righteous. He is not unrighteous to inflict wrath. So here's my point of application for this verse, for, the, for these two questions. You can trust God. You can trust Him all the way down. You can believe that all the way to the innermost core of who He is, it's goodness. You can trust Him. So we've been through several of these questions. The next one is in verse, verse 7 here. In verse 7, again Paul's imaginary dialogue partner says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Notice we're still working with truth and falsehood like we were back in verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And, and now it's like the interlocutor, interlocutor, the dialogue partner, is running with that. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If this whole world is just about God getting glory... Why am I held responsible for the part that he set me up to play in this? You see what the guy's doing? The guy is saying, this is God's game. He's fixed the board. He's arranged it all. It wasn't my fault. Why am I condemned as a sinner? That's the, that's the question here. And again, I think there's a grain of truth here. That yes, God did set the world up so that all people would be sinners. The other, the other piece of the puzzle that, again, is missing here is this also sets the world up so that everybody can be redeemed by the death of Jesus. This also sets the world up so that the solution that God provides in Christ applies to every single human being in all the world. 
consider, consider what holding the view that is articulated in verse 7, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Consider what you do to yourself if you hold that position. If you embrace that position, I'm not responsible. What you do is you rob yourself of your human dignity. You take away from yourself your moral agency. If you can't be blamed for your sins, you can't be credited for your acts of righteousness. You understand what I'm saying? If you're not responsible when you do bad things, you're not responsible for the good things you did either. You, you can't be praised for triumphs of virtue or achievements of human ingenuity. Even dogs are responsible for their transgressions. I didn't see this happen, but the other day in our house, our dog was playing with, 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 with Luke, and he inadvertently uh, caught Luke with his teeth on his face, and Luke responded in pain, and the dog hunkered down. His tail went between his legs. His head went down to his paws. He, felt, he was clearly and obviously so ashamed. He felt responsible for the pain that he had called my son, pain that he had caused my son. People who say that they're not responsible for their sins are making themselves less than dogs. There's a, a, a person named Ronald Knox who defined a baby as a loud noise at one end and no sense of responsibility at the other. Don't be a baby. You're responsible. Next question, verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? If God's truth is highlighted by my falsehood, why not increase the falsehood to bring out the truth more clearly? Why not? Well, for one reason, because you're the one that suffers from your sin. You're the one that suffers from your falsehood. And you know this. We all know that our sin just causes us more pain. That's what it does to us. And, and another a great reason not to do this is because you could enjoy God instead. Uh, this, listen to this verse in Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. We're being enticed to the good life, and we're being told that the path to the good life is the path of humility and fearing God. And, and it's like Solomon is saying to his son in this statement, do you know why wicked people steal? Because they want to have wealth. How does that work out for them? They don't get rich. They get more poor as a result of their, their theft. So don't go that way. Do you know why rich people boast about their achievements? Do you know why proud people wear their, their acclaim on their foreheads and on their shoulders and they want, every, they want to brag? They want honor. Do they get honor? No, they get scorn. People don't appreciate proud people. Do you know why wicked people pursue their illicit pleasures? They're looking for life. And, and Solomon is saying, those things, riches and honor and life, those things are found in the path of obedience. 
Embrace humility, embrace the fear of the Lord, walk with God, and you'll have everything that the wicked want. That's what Solomon is, is, is saying. So here, here's application for um, 3 7. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And 3 8. Why not do evil that good may come? Well, because you can repent. Why are you condemned as a sinner? Because you can repent. You can decide, I've had enough of this way of life. And you can do good. You can decide, I'm going to go hard after God. And you can enjoy the Lord. So there are five questions, I think, here. Is there any benefit to being Jewish? Yeah, you have the Bible. Was God unfaithful? Because the Jews disobeyed and disbelieved? Of course not. Was, is God unrighteous if he inflicts wrath? Of course not. He's righteous. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. Are we responsible? Absolutely we're responsible. Why not do more evil? Well, because you can do good. You can enjoy God. Look at what Paul says at, at the end of verse 8 here. Some people slanderously charge us with, this, with saying this. Why not do evil that good may come? And then he just concludes their condemnation is just. They're rightly condemned. That's obviously not what Paul is teaching. And anyone who takes that position deserves to be condemned. So think with me again about Rahab. Think of this first question. Um, What's the value of circumcision? Well, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Rahab repented and joined with, with those who had God's word. Was God unfaithful in response to Jewish faithlessness. No, God was faithful. And, and I think we can apply the language of 1 John 1, 9. God was faithful to cleanse her of all unrighteousness and to forgive her of the sins that she confessed when she turned away from idolatry and immorality and gave herself to the Lord. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? God's righteousness guarantees that those who oppressed Rahab will be justly punished. God's righteousness guarantees that for those who believe God's promises, He will be righteous and just to them and forgive them and show them mercy. Are we responsible? Rahab's responsibility grounds the fact that the New Testament commends her both in the book of James and in the fact that she's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. I think Rahab thought her life was worth living. I think Rahab was probably glad that in spite of everything that she had been through, she was glad that God created her. What about that last question? Why not do evil that good may come? If Rahab had embraced that that perspective... Would we have the Messiah? I mean, if we believe in God's absolute meticulous sovereignty, his DNA structure had to be exactly what it was for him to be exactly who he was. You take one person out of that genealogy and the whole thing falls apart. So my questions for you are, won't you hear this good word? Won't you respond by crying out to the Lord if you don't know him? calling on his name and pleading with him to give you a circumcised heart? And won't you hope 
in the hero born to the harlot. Won't you believe in this boy whose body was broken? Won't you trust in this one who is trustworthy that you might live out the law by loving Jesus and laying your life down for others as he laid down his life for you? Let's pray. Father, we pray that these questions would teach us how to think, and we pray that Paul's responses to these questions would teach us how to reason, and we pray that you would make us people who think carefully and live well, and we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to recognize how your character, the fact that you, you don't just have a goodness part and a righteousness part, and then a loving part. No, you are loving, and you are good, and you are just in everything that you are. Lord, we pray that you would cause this mystery of who you are to to summon worship from us, to cause us to respond as we should. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we don't have these grains of truth from which wrong conclusions can be drawn. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed the full scope of your plan to us, everything that we need for life and godliness. And we are amazed that you would love us, that you would love the world by sending forth your Son, that he might die in our place. Lord, we ask that you'd mark us by these truths for Christ's sake. Amen.